So as we study the book of Genesis, we know that it was authored by the book or by the, the man Moses. However, we also know that Moses did not live chronologically until after all of the events in the book of Genesis were already completed. And so therefore, Moses was more the editor-in-chief of the book of Genesis than he was uh, the author. I'm sure that there were certain portions of it that were inspired, that God spoke to Moses and told him to write. But what we have in the book of Genesis is a series of about 11 compiled records that had been preserved, and then Moses, as he was instructed by God, included them in what would become the Torah, or this section of the Torah that we know to be the book of Genesis. Now, the first of those 11 records begins, actually, in the third verse of chapter 2, when it says that this, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, basically describing for us what happened immediately following the creation. And so that's the first toldot, that's the Hebrew word, it's T-O-L-D-O-T, it's translated generations in the Bible, but that's the first record, and it goes from chapter 2, verse 3, all the way through the end of chapter 4, and it basically gives to us the, the record of the fall, what happened uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened with Cain and Abel, uh, and, and, and how Cain killed his brother, and, and that whole thing, and it kind of comes to a close at the end of chapter 4. Then the second compilation or told dot begins in chapter 5 and extends then all the way through up until um, chapter 6 verse 8 the chapter that we kind of find ourselves in here tonight and that is these are the generations of Adam and, and what that record essentially gives to us is the history of those that lived from the time of Seth the you know the son of Adam and Eve that kind of replaced Abel all the way down through Noah. And it covers a period of time of about 1,500 or 1,600 years just in about a chapter and eight verses there as it describes uh, the, you know, the succession of one to the next. And then the beginning of chapter six, which is the, the portion of scripture that we studied in the days of Noah, just describes what the world looked like in the time that Noah was born. And so then that record comes to a completion, and in chapter 6, verse 9, right in the middle of the, the, the chapter on Noah, that begins the third record, or the third toldot, when it says, and you could just glance there with your eyes, chapter 6, verse 9, it says that these are now the generations of Noah. And what it means, basically, is that this is the history of what took place from Noah through his ministry and through his lifespan, more or less. And so this record goes from Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, all the way up through the end of chapter 9, where we come to the end of Noah's life, the end of Noah's ministry and all that God did through Noah. And then the next one uh, will begin in chapter 10, the generation of the sons of Noah, what took place after him, and, and so on and so forth as we go through the book of Genesis. And I point that out to you just because in our studies the last few times as we've looked at the days of Noah, we kind of passed over that, and I just want you to see that we've made somewhat of a transition in God's mind in terms of timing of things. You know, we've gone from uh, the history bringing us to the flood to now this is what happened in the days of Noah. 
Now, where we are is an amazing portion of the Bible. This record that we have before us of the Genesis flood that happened that we all have heard of, that we know, uh, um, you know so much about. But it's very important to the Bible because it answers for us a lot of questions that we would have that would otherwise be unanswered. Questions like, what happened to the dinosaurs that we have a fossil record of, but we have no uh, um, visible evidence of? What happened to them? That question is answered as we go through and look at these things. How were many of the great canyons and geological structures of the earth formed? And the, the flood, the record of the flood answers many of that for us. Why do we have seasons? What happened to man's long lifespan? Why did we go from living 900 plus years prior to the flood to now where, you know, if we make it to 100, we're doing pretty good. Why is that? What happened? What changed? And that's all answered in these passages. What we learn of God through the account of the flood is that we learn of his intimate involvement in the affairs of men. We learn his ability to see the invisible, to see even into the thought life of man and to see what's going on internally. That is given to us in the record concerning the flood. We learn in this passage of God's holiness, that he will not strive with sinners forever, but that there does come a point where the patience of God is exhausted and that he will interject himself into man's history and he will judge sin for it, that judgment will come. We learn that in this passage. We learn of his power. We learn that he's able to perform his word, that he's able to do what he said, and we know that nothing can stand against God when God desires to move in and put an end to something. And so we learn of his power and of his ability to do what he says he's going to do. And we also learn of God that judgment is very much a part of his nature, that as much as love and mercy and grace And all of the other things that he reveals of himself, that judgment and justice are equally a part of who he is. We also learn from this account, these chapters concerning the flood, of the future things that are coming upon the world. We learn where mankind is headed morally. We know that as it was prior to the flood, where iniquity grew to a point where it came to a head, we know that that will repeat itself, that sinful fallen man is going to progress in his sinfulness to that point yet again, because that's what's in us. We learn that from this record of the flood. We learn what conditions bring that to its Uh, proper place where God is going to move in and resolve it. And we know what to look out for, for when God might be judging the world again. And probably the most important thing that we learn from this passage in this record of the flood that's before us in scripture is that we learn how we can be spared the coming judgment. How can we that live in days very similar to what the Bible describes in these chapters, how can we escape from the wrath of God that will come and will judge sinners. And so we recognize this portion of scripture to be historical, that this is a record of actual events that happened, but it's also very critical and helpful for us in understanding concerning our God, concerning our world and our environment, and concerning our future and where things are going. So there's much for us to learn in this passage. Now, by way of transition into the text that we'll be studying tonight, 
I want to remind us that when we study our God, anytime that we study the Bible, we are first and foremost, we're studying God. It's a revelation of who he is. And what we must remember is that our God is not a force, but our God is a person. He's a person and he has a personality. And we know traits and attributes of that personality, you know, descriptive characteristics of who he is. And we know that he's perfect and sovereign and unchanging. Those are all things that we know concerning our God. But he is very much unique and distinct in who he is. And he's the Lord that does not change. We know that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he's holy. That he's driven by grace. That the blood and the cross are his means of salvation. That faith is the way by which, or the way wherein we approach unto God and the way that we're accepted by God. We know that all of those things are unchanging attributes about who He is and about His ways. But what we also recognize about our God is that though He does not change, there have been throughout history different means by which God has operated in the world. Not at all compromising who he is or his way. Those things stay the same. But yet God using, as it were, different tools at different times to accomplish his purposes in redeeming mankind and in reaching mankind. And so we see God using in the very beginning human conscience. And that's what he gave to Adam and to his descendants. He gave them conscience. And that was the the avenue through which God communicated and worked in the world. We know in the days of Moses and Israel, when he was establishing his nation, he raised up Abraham and his sons and he made a nation. And that nation became the entity through which God communicated to the world. The medium of expression whereby God was made known to humanity, it was the nation Israel. And he used his word and he used the law, the Torah. And he used the temple and his people and the prophets. And that was what God used throughout that portion of history to make himself known in the world. But when Jesus came into the world, God shifted and he set Israel aside. He didn't cast them away, but he set them aside. And God began using a different entity to express himself who does not change. It became the church. Jesus foretold it in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when he was speaking to Peter and his disciples at Caesarea Philippi. He said, who do you say that I am? And they said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, upon this rock, upon my Christ character, upon me being the Messiah, upon my salvation, upon this, I will build my church. Something that is coming yet future. It hasn't been started yet, but it will come. Jesus announcing that there will be a new entity through which God will reveal himself to the world. And on the day of Pentecost, the record in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit descended after Jesus rose again, the church was born. On a single day, the Spirit was poured out and 3,000 people were born again, added to the Lord. And then the rest of the book of Acts gives to us the historical account of the early days of this new thing that God is now using the church in the world. 
And so God using different entities to fulfill his purpose historically and in the present day using the church, the same church that you and I are a part of, this body of Christ, this body of believers that God uses in the world. So what is the purpose of the church? What's the reason? What was the reason for Israel? What was the reason for conscience? What's the reason for God's revealed word? What's the reason for it? Why? The answer, first of all, is for salvation. Because there was a curse that separated man from God, and man needed to be set right and brought back into relationship and fellowship with God. And so whatever God has used historically, his primary reason for using it is to draw people back to himself for salvation. Second of all, for separation. God makes it clear that fallen man is separate from a holy God. And when God calls an individual life to himself, he calls them to come out from the congregation of those that are separated from him and now to be separated unto himself. And so God's entities, Israel and now the church, also a means of separation whereby God insulates us from the world and makes a distinction, a difference. We're not the same as everybody else. We're not better but we're not the same as them because we've been blood-bought, we're saved, we're sealed by His Holy Spirit. The purpose of the church also for instruction, what we're doing right now, so that we can learn who our God is and what does He require of us. He wants us to know, and so He's made a way and a means for us to learn. The church, the entities through which God works in the world, also used to preserve, to keep us, to sustain us, to protect us, from being caught up in the waves and the currents and the hurricanes of the world that destroy. And then finally, it serves as a place for us to serve him in return. He gives us something to do so that we can also serve him. And so that brings us now to this whole concept of this thing, this entity that God gave to Noah through which he might be saved And anyone that would hear him also had the ability and the potential of being saved as well. God calls Noah in the light of pending judgment to build an ark, to build something, a tool through which man might be saved, separated, preserved, instructed, and that he might also serve while God does his thing in the world separately. And so as we look at Genesis chapter 6 tonight, and we pick up in verse 14, looking at a little bit more detail of what actually took place in the text, we're told there that God spoke to Noah concerning this judgment that was coming. And he said to him, verse 14, make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shall you make in the ark, and you shall pitch it or tar it or oil it, within and without, with pitch or tar. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. A window shall you make to the ark, and in a cubit shall you finish it above, and the door of the ark shall you set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shall you make it. And so God calls Noah now to make this ark. The word ark in the Hebrew is literally a box. That's what it means. That you're to make a box. That's the first thing that he says to him. 
And then he says concerning that box that he's to make it out of wood, gopher wood or acacia wood. Now, what's amazing to me is that as I look at this ark, this thing that God has called Noah to make that is to be a means of his salvation, I'm amazed to see the correlation between it and between this entity, the church, that you and I are called into as a means of God's salvation and preservation in the days that we live in. Notice the first thing that God says concerning the ark, that it's to be made out of wood. Wood in the Bible is always a picture symbolically of the flesh. It's beautiful, but yet it's corruptible. It's useful, but it has a shelf life, just like you and I. The Bible says that the glory of man is like the flower of the field. It flourishes, and then it's gone, and the place of it is remembered no more. When the tabernacle and then the temple later were made, all of the articles of the tabernacle were to be made of wood, the same wood, acacia wood, but then overlaid and covered with gold. A picture, a symbol of the believer that you and I are the temple of the living God. When Elisha the prophet came on the scene during his ministry, and God used Elisha and the miracles of Elisha to teach and to explain and to give revelation. There was a time when a man was chopping wood down to build a structure for them to learn in. And the axe head and his axe flung off in his zeal and went into the river. And he came to Elisha and he said, I've got a problem. I lost my axe head and I was borrowing the axe. Isn't it funny how that is when you borrow something? It doesn't break until you have it, you know? I've actually made it a habit when I loan something out that I say, if this breaks while you have it, it's my responsibility, not yours, because I know it's going to happen, you know, and just set you free ahead of time, you know. <laughs> but the axe had flung into the river, and this guy said, what am I going to do? And Elisha's response to him is he said, take a piece of wood and throw it in the river, and watch what happens. And the man takes some wood, he throws it into the river, and miraculously, the axe head floats to the surface. And Elisha says, now go get the axe head and slow down, take it a little bit more easy. But the story itself, again, a picture of when we lose our cutting edge, when we lose the, the, the effectiveness of our life, oftentimes in our zeal, we can just hack away at something and lose it. And the solution is throw your flesh in the river and give place to the Spirit of God again, and you'll get your cutting edge back. And over and over again throughout the Scripture, we see wood as an illustration of the flesh. And isn't it amazing that the church, just like the ark, is made up of what? It's not bricks and mortar. It's not a building, but the church is us. It's you and me. It's made up of flesh, human beings. We are living stones, the Bible said, that are being fit together as a dwelling place for the Lord. But God doesn't want it to stay wood because wood doesn't hold up well on its own. But notice the second thing that God says concerning the ark. He says that you'll, you'll make it of acacia wood, but then you're going to pitch it within and without. In other words, it's to be covered with oil, not just on the outside, but also on the inside. It's interesting, the word pitch that he uses here, it means tar, that's what he's talking about, to cover it with something that will preserve it and seal it. But the word that he uses that's translated pitch is actually the word kofar, which is translated every other time in the Old Testament as atonement, ransom, or satisfaction. Isn't that interesting? That the wood is to be covered with tar, but he illustrates it in that way. 
The oil or the tar that this symbolizes or speaks of is the Holy Spirit that's given to you and I when we come to Jesus Christ. Yes, we are flesh. We're fallen, frail, and corruptible. But we're sealed by God, by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 says that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. God has sealed us. And thus the wood was to be sealed with tar so that it would be preserved. And so also we are sealed by God, not just on the outside where everybody sees, but also on the inside where everybody doesn't necessarily see. We're to be consecrated to God and his spirit is to have first place in our life. It's interesting to me that the wood is never seen. And the flesh of you and I is never to be seen. Only that which God gives what he covers. The third thing that God says to Noah concerning the ark is he says that he's to make rooms in the ark. Now, practically, that would be for livestock. You wouldn't put the lions with the zebras, you know. I think Gary Larson, the author of The Far Side, had some humorous quips on that, you know. <laughs> no, no longer put the lions with the horses, you know, and the whole thing. But what does it mean for you and I as part of the church? I believe that God... And his wisdom in this thing called the church has provided many rooms for many different types of people. There are many different sects and denominations that God has ordained, established, and tolerates that are very different from one another, yet they're still part of the same body, the church. As the church, we believe that Jesus Christ is God, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, that he died on a cross, rose again the third day, ascended into heaven, and that he is returning and coming again for the church. And that is our creed. That's the bottom line of what we believe. Now, outside of those tenets or facets of the Christian faith that make it what it is, there's a lot of latitude for people to believe different things. Some people believe that God is to be worshipped in a very liturgical and stern and somber way. God allows for that. He accepts that kind of worship. Other people believe that worship is to be free and expressive and open. And God has made room for that and he allows it. Some people believe that prayer is to be offered in a very systematic and liturgical way. And other people believe that it's to be expressed in languages that aren't even known by humankind. And God makes latitude and room for both of those things. Some people believe that the sequence of things that are going to happen in the future are going to happen in an X, Y, and Z order. And some people believe that it's going to happen in a Z, Y, and X order. And God makes room for those kind of positions and latitudes. Some type of people have very strict convictions about certain behaviors, things that are allowable and things that aren't. And other people in faith don't hold those same convictions on gray areas where God isn't explicitly clear. And God has made room in the body of Christ for both the lions and the lambs, the horses and the mules. God has made room in the church. And God accepts even those that don't believe the right way like we do. (laughs) Just kidding. God goes on to say in verse 15 that these are to be the dimensions of it. The length, 300 cubits, the breadth, 50 cubits, and the height of it, 30 cubits. God is the one that sets the dimensions for the ark. It's about 450 feet long by 75 feet wide by 
three stories or 30, uh, 45 feet roughly high in the whole thing. Now, the size of it is absolutely amazing when you consider um, what's there. It's about 1.5 million cubic feet of space that God provided. About 95,700 square feet of, of things, and it would be enough room to fit 550 livestock cars. Probably about 130,000 sheep could have been comfortably kept upon the ark. And people that have kind of tried to figure it out figured that there were probably about 70,000 animals that came to Noah and, and that were there boarded upon the ark. And so God gave plenty of room for all of these things to be a part of. But God is the one that set the dimensions of what the ark would be. And also concerning the church, God is the one that determines the length, the breadth, and the height and the depth of the church. It's determined by God. And amazingly, God keeps it going despite its shape and its size. One of the things that stood out to me when Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis, the Christian apologist and uh, scientist, when he debated Bill Nye, the science guy, and they had a debate about creation versus evolution. And Bill Nye, the opponent, the evolutionist, he made the comment that it would be scientifically impossible for a wooden structure that size to hold together in that condition or under those conditions. That nothing that size made out of wood could hold together. It was scientifically impossible. And I remember, you know, like hearing that and being like, ooh, you know, and ooh, and Ken Ham, you know, gave his rebuttal and the whole thing. And, and as I watched that, I thought to myself, so what? The ark didn't float because it was scientifically strong enough to float. The ark floated because God made it float. And if God told Noah to build it this size and that he was going to preserve his life, then God was going to keep the thing together no matter what. It means nothing to me about how seaworthy something that wooden and large could be. And when I think about the church, the saving entity that God has created in these days that he calls us into, I think sometimes I look at it and I think, how in the world can this thing survive? I mean, look at who God has called. Sometimes it gets too big for its own good. Not just an individual church, but the whole thing at large, and it can be such a mess. But what did Jesus say? He said that upon this rock, I will build my church. What's the rock? He's the rock. And he said that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Meaning that despite its shape, despite its size, despite its weaknesses, God's going to make it float because God said it's going to float. And it's going to endure and serve his purposes all the way through until the end. He ordains its shape and its size. The length, the breadth, the depth, and the height is in his hand. He says, furthermore, concerning the construction of the ark in verse 16, that a window is it to have a cubit from the finish above. The purpose of a window in the ark would be twofold. Number one is to let light in. And the other one is to let stink out. <laughs> And isn't that true concerning the church as well? <laughs> Jesus said that we're the light of the world, right? And he's given us the light of his word and the fire, the light of his Holy Spirit. And that's to be constantly coming into the church. What we're doing right now is we're opening the window of God's light and we're letting his light shine upon our hearts. 
Psalm chapter 119, I think it's verse 105, says, Thy word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It says also in the same psalm that the entering in of God's word giveth light. God's light being led in as we open up the window of his word and let it feed us and enlighten us and enliven us and illuminate our understanding in our minds. At the same time, stink is supposed to be continually being removed from our lives, isn't it? Somebody said one time that Christians are a lot like manure. That spread out, we can do a whole lot of good, but all clumped together, we just stink. (laughs) And there's truth in that, isn't there? But we're to be constantly being changed. We're to be allowing God to work in our lives and to blow his living breath upon our lives and change us from the inside out that the things that we once were that we're ashamed of are no longer a part of our nature on the inside, but those things are continually being removed. How can a young man cleanse his way, the Bible says, but by taking heed thereunto according to your word? So the same word that lets light in also purifies and changes us and the stink comes out. The window of God's salvation, of God's ark. He also says in the same verse that there's to be a door. Notice that there's only one door. There isn't two doors. There's not one way in and one way out. There's no emergency exits. There's no building department that has to sign off on this thing before Noah gets a CO on things. There's one way in and there's one way out. And what did Jesus say concerning his salvation that he provided? He said in John chapter 10, verse 9, he said, I am the door. He said it was singular and it was exclusive. By me, if any man enter in, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. But Jesus alone is the door. He is the one way into salvation that God has provided. There is not another. And Jesus said that any man who tries to come in any other way is a thief and a robber, and he ultimately will be rejected. He will not succeed, and he will not be saved. Because there is one door, and God controls that door. That door is Jesus Christ. He also tells us concerning the ark, at the end of verse 16, that there's to be three levels, a lower, a second, and a third story, you will make it. And so we read in the New Testament book of 1 John, chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, or right before verse 15, the Apostle John writes, and he says, little young men, first he starts with. And then he says, children. And then he says, fathers, or children, young men, and fathers. There's three levels in this thing that as we grow and as we mature, we grow, we're born again. And Peter says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. And we all begin this Christian life on the first level, learning the foundational instruments of Christianity, what it means to know God and walk with God and talk to God. But then we grow and mature and we become young men and young women in the faith. And we kind of go through spiritual adolescence where we're trying to understand things and figure it out. And can I walk here and can I go there? And what does it mean to do this? And how does all this? And we're figuring it out just like an adolescent in in regular life. But Paul said to the Ephesians, he said that we should not remain children, but that we should grow up into him, which is the head in all things into Christ. And so John says, fathers, I speak to you. And so there's fathers and mothers in the faith. Those that have grown beyond infancy and beyond childhood and have come into maturity in their understanding of who God is. There's three levels in this ark, this thing called salvation. 
And thus God calls us into the entity that he's using in the days that we live in, not an ark or a box like it was in Noah's day, but the church of the living God. And what is the purpose of the church? The purpose of the church is salvation because there's wrath coming on upon a Christ-rejecting and sinful world. The purpose of the church is separation, that we might be called out from the masses of those that will be judged. Not that we're better or that we're exalted in some way, but we are called to be separate from the world and wholly sanctified unto God is the word that the Bible uses. The church is a place of preservation where God keeps us insulated where we're protected, where temptation from the world and the various things that God has made brothers and sisters and us being knit together and the growth and the teaching of the word of God and the hearing of the same. We're preserved that we might not be defiled by the world in the church. And it's also given to us as a place of service. We're insulated, protected, and then we serve just as Noah was given something to do on the ark to keep all things alive. So also you and I are given gifts and callings and responsibilities, things that we're to use and occupy until he comes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I love the way the Apostle Paul summarizes the purpose of the church in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. He says this, and he says it very briefly. He says, but if I tarry long that you, Timothy, might know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, he calls it this, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Isn't that beautiful? I don't know that there's a better expression that encapsulates all of the purpose of what we exist for than that, that we are the pillar and the ground of the truth. What is a pillar? A pillar is a strong structure that holds something up. What is the pillar holding up? The truth. And you and I are called to hold up the truth. We're the pillar of the truth. It sits on top of us because the truth is to be alive in our lives. But it's not just a pillar. It also, the church is the ground of the truth. What is the ground? The ground is what everything else stands on, even the pillar, right? And so, The church is the pillar that upholds the word, but the church is also the ground upon which the church stands. So we uphold the truth, but we also stand on the truth. Meaning that we don't just profess it to be true, holding it up, but we also live in the truth, standing upon it. Our lives are built upon the foundation of truth. Amazing thing that God has called us into. And it is the entity through which God is working in the world today. It's the church, and that's the purpose for it. Well, God goes on, and he describes there, following the dimensions of the ark, he gives to him instruction in verse 17. He says, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, And everything that is in the earth shall die. The word die there is the word expire or pass away. And essentially what God is saying to Noah is that two things are going to happen when the flood of waters comes. Number one is that every living thing will die and that every other thing will expire or pass away. So both living things and inanimate things, all things are going to be destroyed from the earth. Let's take that to heart that everything in this world is one day going to perish, whether it be something living or whether it be an object that is unliving. 
All of it one day will perish away. And that's what God says to Noah concerning this. But with you will I establish my covenant. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, you will bring into the ark to keep them alive with you. And they shall be male and female. Of the fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort, listen, shall come unto you to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to you, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus did Noah, according to all that commanded him, so did he. And so basically what God gives to Noah there is he gives him a promise concerning his wife, his sons and their wives. And then he gives to him instruction concerning the animals that will come to him that he will save alive upon the ark. And then he instructs Noah, not only are you to build the ark, but you're to also provide food enough for you and for them for the time that you're on the ark for when the flood comes. And the chapter concludes with the verse that we studied last week, that Noah obeyed and he fulfilled all that God called him to do. Now, I love that because you have basically a hundred years worth of labor that's just encapsulated in one verse. And Noah just obeyed. That's a hundred years. But he did it. Well, the question that now remains as we pass into chapter 7 is how does one get on the ark? I mean, that would be of great interest to us if we lived in Noah's day, wouldn't it? And I believe it bears application to us in this day when we consider God's coming judgment upon the world. How do we get on the ark? How do we get saved? How can we be spared the coming judgment that's coming upon the world because of those that have rejected Christ? How do we get on it? It says in chapter 7, verse 1, it says that the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this uh, generation. The very first thing that we recognize concerning Noah's getting onto the ark is that the invitation was initiated by God. God called Noah to come to him onto the ark. He gives him a very clear and personal invitation. He says, come you and all your house into the ark. And that's how God comes to every single individual. He comes to you and he comes to me and he gives to us the same invitation that he gave to Noah. To Noah it was come unto the ark, but to you and I, Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus bids us to come. In the book of Revelation, it says, all who are thirsty, let them come. All that are in need, he calls us to come to him. And so the invitation is given to us by God who initiated in his love, and he says, come. Now, what's amazing is that God didn't say go. But he called him to come. What does that mean? It means that God was already on the ark and he was calling Noah to himself. And isn't it remarkable that God doesn't send us somewhere to go do something for him apart from him. But when God calls us, he calls us to himself. He calls us into relationship with himself. And that's probably the most beautiful aspect of the whole thing is that God's purpose in salvation or separation or sanctification or anything else that God's doing in our life, he's calling us into relationship with himself. 
not a method or a religion or something that we fulfill, but something that God wants to personally walk with us. He wants to personally be near us in this endeavor that the whole time we're a part of whatever it is that he calls us to be a part of, that it's never independent of himself or of his presence, of his intimacy or of his care for our lives. Sometimes I feel like the Wizard of Oz sitting up here. Because, you know, I'm here and you're there and I'm talking and you're listening and what I'm saying you're absorbing and, you know, and, and there, we have this kind of thing going on, but I really do. I feel like the Wizard of Oz and you're like, wow, he's way up there and the lights and this whole thing. But at the end of the day, when I'm done, I get down there and I'm just one of, of all of you, just a man, just like everyone else, fallen, frail, weak, vulnerable, issues, you know, just like you. I mean, just, just like you. Just think about your worst thing that you wouldn't want anyone to know. I have a worse thing, just like you do. I have things that God's dealing with in my life, just like you do. I have a family and struggles. I get tired. I've, I've, I'm, I'm a mess. If you know me, you, you say, yeah, we know, you know. <laughs> And it's this horrible thing that happens in this dynamic because now I'm the Wizard of Oz. You know, I can fulfill your wildest dream. I've got a Bible in my hand. I'm a soldier with a sword and and this whole thing. But listen, this is just a calling, something that God has given me to do and enabled and give me incredible, gracious opportunity. Sometimes I don't even know why. But the basis of my Christian experience is not what I'm doing right here, sitting here and, and talking at you. The thing that makes my Christian life what it is is the fact that I'm in a relationship with the living God. That I know his presence and his intimacy and his kindness in my life. Those are the things that feed me and make me a Christian. And it's the same thing that you are called into as well. We are one body in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, but you are one in him. In the same relationship that I have with him, you have with him. The same access I have to God, you have to God. And that is what makes him who he is and this what it is. And he's absolutely amazing in what he does. Come, Noah, unto me, unto the ark. The ark is just a box. It's a smelly box. The thing that made it good was that God was there. That's the thing that makes life good. Come, you and all your house, into the ark. For you have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Noah was declared righteous by God, and thus was the merit of his invitation. Now, this righteousness that Noah possesses is not a righteousness that came on his own, because there is no such thing as a righteousness that's possessed on one's own. Righteousness is something that is imputed and given by God as a gift, and not something that can ever be earned or obtained by our works. Do you guys understand that? You cannot be good enough for God in your behavior or in your promise and pledge or in your try and attempt. It's impossible. God gives us righteousness based upon what he paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ. For Noah, Adam, Abraham, David, Esther, Ruth, for all of them in the Old Testament, they were believing forward on what God would do when Christ came. And that was their righteousness. For Peter, Paul, Martin Luther, Spurgeon, you and I, we look back on what God already did with Jesus Christ on the cross. 
And our faith in his paid salvation is what gives us righteousness before God, not our works. So an invitation initiated by God, a righteousness that was given by faith, Hebrews eleven seven tells us that it was by faith that Noah believed and was declared righteous, that he is now called to come to him on the ark. And then he says, Of every clean beast you shall take by sevens, male and female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female, of the fowls of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him, and Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. So it took about a hundred years for all this to go down. And Noah went in, and his sons and his wife, and his sons' wives with him, into the ark because the waters of the flood. Of clean beasts, and of beasts that are not clean, and of fowls, and of everything that creeps upon the earth, there went in two and two unto Noah, unto the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were open. So the water came from underneath and the water came from above. There was a, a wellspring from below and the rains descended from above. And the rain was upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. In the self-same day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. They and every beast after his kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth after his kind and every fowl after his kind and every bird of every sort. Kind simply means species. And all that means is that Noah didn't have to bring every variation of dog or cow or kangaroo. He just had to bring a male and a female and God would take care of expanding the seed from there. And it says that they went in unto Noah into the ark two and two of all flesh wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh as God had commanded him. Listen, and the Lord shut him in. Do you realize that there was no door handle on the inside? <laughs> that God was the one that was responsible for closing the door of the ark on the day that the rain came upon the earth. Here's the amazing thing about this episode of God shutting the door. Is that God left the door open as long as he possibly could to allow anyone that would come inside with Noah to hear, heed his message, and be a part of his salvation. The New Testament tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, that he bid them to come, but not one came. And when the time was up, God himself shut the door. And two things happened when God shut the door. Number one is that Noah was safely secured inside. That's number one. But number two, everyone else was isolated outside. When the door to the ark was shut, the opportunity for salvation and the season of grace was closed. And no one could any longer heed the message of Noah and come. Their destiny was sealed. God had closed them in. 
In the book of Revelation, chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, God gives a message to a last day's church. It's called the church in Philadelphia. And Jesus addresses himself to that church as the one who holds the key of David. And he says this. He says, I open and no man shuts, and I shut and no man opens. And there will come a day when this time of grace, when the invitation to come freely, to come and drink from the water of life, there's a day when that door will close and no longer will people have the opportunity to simply just call upon the Lord in faith like we have now in the days that we live in. There's a day of judgment coming and one day that door will close. And what happens then? It says in verse 17 that the flood was 40 days upon the earth and the waters increased and bear up the ark and listen, and it was lift up from the earth. Isn't that amazing language? Why didn't he just say, and the ark floated away? Or the ark was just, why does he say that the ark was lift up from the earth? Do you know why? Because it's a picture. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And ever since the day the church started on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the door has been opened that whosoever will, let him come. But there is also equally a day coming when that door will close. And when it does, the church will then be lifted up from the earth. The event that we spoke of last week, the rapture, when God calls his own home. And then it will be too late. You say, well, what happens after that? Look at verse 18. It says that the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward, it's about 22, 23 feet, did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beasts and of every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land died. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and creeping things and the fowl of the heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth and Noah only remained alive. And they that were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed upon the earth for 150 days. As soon as the ark was lifted from the earth, destruction came and the world was judged and no flesh survived. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. For up until the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, living life as usual, all the way up until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And on that day, it says that then the flood came and it took them all away. There was a destruction that came after that. Destruction and wrath. The door will not remain open forever. By application, as we close our study tonight, there's three things I just want you to take with you by way of remembrance of these things that we've spoken of. Number one, to those that are disillusioned with church, I don't blame you. I don't agree with you, but I don't blame you. <laughs> because Jesus is into it. Jesus is into the church and all of its craziness and all of its problems and all the rest. 
And understand that you cannot thrive in this life outside of it. I know there's some that say, I'm done with it. I'm through with it. You can't do that because we've been called into it. And for his name's sake, we persevere. Number two application. To those of you, to those of us that are waiting on a promise from God, persevere. It took 100 years for God's promise of a flood to come. For 100 years, Noah was laboring towards a purpose, waiting for it not knowing when it would come. But when the time came, within seven days, everything happened in rapid succession, and it came to pass, just as God said. And sometimes we think, you know, I'm 38 years into this thing. I don't know what I'm doing, why I'm building it, and the whole thing. Just wait and keep going, because when God's timing comes, you're going to see things happen in such rapid succession, and it's going to be boom, boom, boom. The animals are going to show up. Your kids are going to come to the Lord. The whole thing is just going to come to pass. And you say, how did all this happen? Next thing you know, you're floating on the waters watching God work. Persevere. Hang in there. And then finally, to those that are yet on the outside. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ personally. You're looking at us. Maybe you're even visiting. You're going, what in the world is the Wizard of Oz doing up there for this long? <laughs> Why are all these people here? Like, what are we doing? Like, what's the... Listen, this is just plain truth. We're fallen, sinful people who have a great, perfect Savior. He has afforded a way whereby we can escape judgment and we can have eternal life in new, glorified, perfected bodies forever with Him in relationship. That's what He's called us into. That's what this is all about. But the day is coming when that door is going to close. And the people that have been saying to you, you need to come to Jesus Christ and that you're so annoyed with, listen, someday that voice will cease. You will hear it no more. But it will be too late for you then. And the only thing will be to endure the wrath and then you will pay for your own sins. Wherein now you have the opportunity to come into God's ark and he pays the price for your sins in the person of his son. Jesus said, I am the door, but the door is going to close. And the worship team can come and I close with this thought. God has had his hand on the door handle. For about 70 years. In 1948, the nation of Israel was declared by the United Nations to be a legitimate entity again. Jesus said that the generation that sees the blossoming of the fig tree, a symbol of the nation of Israel, he said, This generation will not perish till all these things be fulfilled. That was in 1948. Do you realize that we're on the cusp of entering into 2018? That's 70 years, the 70-year anniversary. You say, well, what's the point? Why is that significant? Because in Psalm chapter 90, Moses wrote, and he said that the years of a man are threescore and ten, or 70 years. In other words, a generation, by God's standard, can biblically be measured by 70 years. What I find really also amazing is that just on this day today, the President of the United States, the Trump, sounded. And he said from the White House that Jerusalem is the United Capital of Israel recognized by the United States of America. And you say, well, what does that mean? I don't know. It's words. (laughs) But it's official and it's legit. 
And I think it means that regardless of anything, the United States is going to be blessed for a season because God says, I'll bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. So I'm happy that he did it. But Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, he said that Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Luke 21, 24. Look it up or look at it on the screen if it goes up there. You know. That Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be come in. Meaning that the times of the Gentiles, which is a reference to the church age, this period that we're talking about, is going to come to an end. And God has had his hand on that door. And we are watching right now in rapid succession things happening at an unprecedented pace that are barreling us towards the things that God said would take place. It's unbelievable. On Friday night into Saturday morning, the Israeli Defense Force used Jericho 1 ground-to-ground missiles, and they bombed an Iranian military operations center outside of Damascus in Syria. You won't find that on the regular news, but it happened. Just last night, not ground-to-ground, but they used F-16 bombers, and they went and they destroyed a Syrian research facility in another, another place just outside of the city of Damascus that was working on research to make uh, Hezbollah missiles more accurate and pinpoint in their accuracy. And the message that was sent by Israel to Syria and Iran and Russia, who is backing all of this, was that we're not going to stand by and let Iran make a presence there in the nation of Israel. We're not going to sit by and just watch that happen. Now, Iran's response to that is that they said, okay, well, if you're going to destroy what we're going to build outside the city of Damascus, then we're going to move it into the city of Damascus because that'll make your decision to take these things out that much harder because you'll have to kill civilians in order to do it. And so we'll use civilian shields, hospitals, schools, and orphanages. And if you want to continue to take out our military operations, then you'll have to do it in Damascus. Isaiah 17, verses 1 and 2 says that Damascus will soon be destroyed and that it will no longer be a nation or a city again, ever again. And it sets everything up for what the Bible talks about in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 when Russia, Iran, and the surrounding Muslim nations say enough is enough. And the reason that's so amazing is because God says in Ezekiel 38 that when that happens, his fury will come up in his face. What am I saying? I'm saying, listen, we're watching all of these things happen right now that the Bible said would happen, leading right into the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. The door is closing. If you need to know God, I suggest that you inquire, that you respond to the invitation to come. If you're living on the fence or on the outside, or if you're screwing around with things that you don't want to be screwing around with when that final trump does actually blow and he calls us home, this is the time to get on your knees and say, God, forgive me, heal me, save me, help me. He's coming. He's coming. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. Please help us, Lord. Help us to understand it. Help us to heed it. Help us to listen. We need you, Lord. We look to you. We thank you for these things. Father, help us to get things right in our life that need to be right in our life. And we thank you tonight for who you are.
Please bless and be with us. Help us, strengthen us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.